Exciting Africa. Welcome back to Sight in Africa, a podcast from the LSE Firozlaji Center for Africa. My name is Yeremia Ohini. I worked with Laura Mann, Tin El Kadi, and Kutso Tsikani to produce the first season of Sight in Africa, which explored academic knowledge production about African countries. In particular, it looks at the ways in which current journal publishing systems reinforce the domination of northern-based scholars in framing academic and policy debates about the continent. This season, we are switching things up. First of all, all our podcasts this year are produced by master's students in LSE's Department of International Development. Secondly, they all have a focus on how knowledge and technology shape economic and social development directly. So before we go into our first episode, let's take a few moments to reflect on what might have changed since we produced our first season. Let's hear first from Laura Mann, Assistant Professor in LSE's Department of International Development. So Laura, have there been any developments since we concluded the first season? Yeah, so in the last year, there's definitely been uh, more discussion about knowledge production within African and development studies, certainly within British universities. Um, And one of the things we see is authors and also departments are replicating what Tin and I tried to do on the first season, looking at the composition of reading lists to see who's on the curriculum. So in the first season, we surveyed reading lists from the UK, Kenya, Ghana, South Africa, and Sudan. And what we uncovered was pretty grim, really. Um, So for example, in our survey of British Development Studies reading lists, we only found a single African-based author on all of these reading lists. And the highest proportion of African-based authors Uh, Within Africa was in South Africa, where it was only 26.78. So all in all, we found an overwhelming domination of scholars based in high-income countries, which is a bit crazy if we're talking about development studies. Um, So we see this kind of audit being done in a lot of different departments within the UK, including my own. And it is a good first step. Um, However, one of the weaknesses of some of these audits is that they're focused very much on the individual identities of scholars on the reading list. So things like their ethnicity, nationality, and gender. So not necessarily where they're geographically located, what institution they're in, in the case of my own department's audit. Um, And generally, therefore, I don't think these audits are really looking at the wider structure in which knowledge is produced. Uh, They also don't look at where people are trained, what kinds of concepts they're using, what kinds of methodologies, whether they're within a dominant paradigm or pushing against dominant paradigms. So they don't really look at the bigger structural issues of knowledge production and how certain ideas, concepts and theories are being reproduced, kind of validated and maintained. Um, So one of the things we tried to do in our first series which really is evident in episodes three and also the interview with Professor Makandawire, is to draw attention to the history of knowledge production within African countries and how political knowledge production remains today. 
So real lasting damage was done to African universities by the decision of the World Bank to deprioritize African higher education in the 80s and the 90s. And this really forced universities to commercialize and privatize themselves. We see this all over the world, but within African countries, it was particularly dramatic and rapid because of the financial pressures they were operating under in the 80s. So today, many universities are still reeling from this period of structural reform within their institutions, and it's meant that doctoral students and academic staff have much less time and funding for their own research. And in many cases, it's also meant that African universities are far more reliant on external funding and partnerships with researchers and universities based in high-income countries. And this support is often not completely neutral. So besides the kind of commercial benefits that researchers in high-income countries may derive from doing research within low- and middle-income countries, there's also a kind of impact on uh, sort of knowledge production itself. So when it comes to social science, in some cases, initiatives specifically try to promote certain kinds of approaches, certain research methodologies, and certain kinds of traditions and disciplinary perspectives on an issue and clearly those with funding and those that have more power within these relationships, they do have disproportionate control over what constitutes rigorous and robust research within journals, within conferences, and within these kinds of funding relationships and decisions. So because of these inequities, both in opportunity and working conditions, there are real financial incentives and pressures forcing scholars firstly to migrate to institutes based overseas, and also to kind of adopt similar methodologies and frameworks in order to get ahead in their academic careers, in order to have their papers accepted in high-ranking journals, and so forth. Um, and this has an impact on the kinds of research that gets done in general. So for example, while foreign researchers may opt for certain methodologies due to language barriers, or the fact that they're far away from the countries they're studying, if those chosen methodologies become dominant and become kind of the most accepted within prestigious departments and journals, then even those researchers who do speak relevant languages and may be able to do much more interesting methodologies, they may also feel a pressure, though, to conform to the methodologies that are favoured by foreign researchers. So over time, we can see how these inequities in power and money, are, it's not just about access to kind of journals or conferences, but it's also about how the system of knowledge changes and how certain ideas, frameworks and paradigms become kind of hegemonic and difficult to displace over time. Thanks very much for that, Laura. We're now going to hear from Tin El Kadi, who is just starting a PhD in LSE's Department of International Development. It's been quite a year, Tin, since we completed the first season of Sight in Africa and it does seem that the world has fallen apart a bit. The COVID-19 pandemic has hit the world hard, taking a significant toll on lives and livelihoods. Millions have been pushed into extreme poverty and really sharpened existing inequalities. And then, of course, in May 2020, the images of George Floyd choked to death by a white policeman shook the world. And that has brought back debates about racial discrimination and decolonization into the spotlight. 
So Tin, how does this context affect how you, as a new PhD student, approach your research? Yeah, it might actually seem like a crazy time to start a PhD. However, I think that it is a fascinating time also to start a PhD. In these times of structural and multidimensional crisis, PhD students have the opportunity to reflect on the state of the world and be prime witnesses to the emergence of a new social and economic order. We have the chance to critically think about our own disciplines and challenge dominant theories and reconsider established methodological practices with the hope of shaking up things a bit. I think that decolonization offers a powerful prism for those wanting to critique positions of power to, and to bring into the debate marginalized voices. As PhD students, I believe that it's important for us to ask how do assumptions of power affect what we select as problems for research? What purposes does our research serve and who will it benefit? In several disciplines, assumptions regarding racial and civilizational hierarchy informed thinking about how the world operated, what was worth researching, and how it should be researched. These assumptions, which informed and justified the expansion of colonial rule, are still implicit, actually, in some of today's research and university courses. I still remember my surprise when, as an undergraduate student in political science at a British university, I realized that the course entitled African Politics started with a lecture on the European encounter with the continent. Knowledge decolonization starts with questioning accepted assumptions and challenging them. Another key aspect to consider as doctoral students is citing authors based in developing countries and acknowledging their contributions to the field. Uh, in the first season of Citing Africa, we uh, noted that scholars from low and middle income countries tended to be disproportionately marginalized from academic debates, even when these debates concerned their own countries. As it stands, a research paper on Senegal published in a top African studies journal, which cites no Senegalese scholars, would not shock anybody. Yet, I think that citing scholars from the countries we study should not just be done simply because it's the ethical thing to do and the fair thing to do, but because it provides us with rich insights from people on the ground, which would then allow us to capture a more accurate picture of our study matter. The marginalization of other perspectives and the dismissal of work produced by scholars in developing countries hinders our intellectual rigor, and I believe that it distorts our understanding of complex events. So diversifying the literature we read and choose to engage with is necessary to help us make sense of the world. But as Laura mentioned, there is a balance to keep in mind between one's will to challenge dominant paradigms and methodologies and what is required to succeed in an academic career. Currently, structures do not incentivize young researchers to hold their disciplines to account. Thus, I think that one uh, to keep in mind the need to get published in recognized journals and to meet the expectations um, established by the scientific community in one's discipline. 
At the end of the day, discipline is defined as a system of rules for conduct, as well as the order maintained among persons under control or command. It takes real bravery to hold your discipline to account. But to end on an optimistic note, I have seen an increasing number of people supporting each other when asking difficult questions and calling out people who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. So connect with other scholars, be bold and enjoy the journey. Thank you very much, Tin. So Laura, what can we expect from season two of Sites in Africa? So we brought together the very best episodes from our master's students who've just graduated from the development department. And they explore uh, ICTs in agriculture, in health and development, uh, public investment in higher education within African countries, and the way in which certain ideas and biases become hegemonic within international organizations working in African countries. Um, and really the idea of this second season is to look outside of academic knowledge, to look at how control over science and technology have real bearings on economic development and competitiveness within the international economy. Because in some ways, uh, knowledge and technology are what workers, firms and economies are fighting over within the global economy. Who has control over knowledge and technology and increasingly that data within value chains? Who really has control over those skill-based entry barriers that both protect competitive advantages, but also kind of give power to frame international norms and discussions over the economy and social development? So these episodes look at some of these questions within particular sectors, particular industries, and hopefully will provoke really interesting ideas and conversations among our listeners. Sounds great. I can't wait for it. Well, thank you very much, Laura Mann and Tin Al-Kadi. I've enjoyed hearing about some of the new developments since the first season of Sight in Africa was released. Just so you know, all episodes for season one and season two will be available on our website, lsc.ac.uk forward slash Africa forward slash sighting dash Africa forward slash sighting dash Africa and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. This is Sighting Africa.